0: When I retired with lots of newfound available time, I enjoyed many travel opportunities. This podcast may encourage you to visit, revisit, or experience virtual armchair travel, learning about exciting new venues. Travel is an excellent vehicle for lifelong learning. Welcome to the What Travel Writers Say podcast. I'm Mike Keenan, your host, and today we visit my kind of town Chicago is, the so-called windy city located in Illinois. Crooner Frank Sinatra might have immortalized Chicago in song, yet it was Catherine O'Leary's infamous cow that was the improbable impetus for Chicago's incredible architecture. A fire started on Sunday, October the 8th, 1871, when the aforementioned bulky bovine carelessly knocked over a lantern. The resulting inferno lasted two days until Tuesday, October the 10th, killing 250 people and destroying 3.3 square miles, including 17,000 homes and buildings, thus leaving 100,000 people homeless. Although one of the largest recorded U.S. disasters of the 19th century, the resulting reconstruction led by world-class architects helped to develop Chicago into one of the most populous and economically significant American cities, third after New York and Los Angeles, with 3 million people or 8 million including the suburbs. It's the capital of the Midwest, home to the nation's busiest airport, O'Hare an air hub and rail center located on the shores of Lake Michigan and home to World Championship sports teams, an internationally acclaimed symphony orchestra, an award-winning theater. The best way to appreciate the many uniquely styled skyscrapers here is to take the instructive 75-minute Wallenda Chicago River architecture tour along the Chicago River. We start at the dock by the impressive and, of course, sparkling Trump Tower, and we traverse all three river branches viewing rehab residential buildings on the north branch, office buildings including the lofty Willis Tower, formerly Sears Tower, on the south branch and the eclectic styles on the main branch which grew after the fire. Our superb guide is incredibly encyclopedic, bursting with data. We learned that the first skyscraper, the Home Insurance Building, was nine stories, or 130 feet, built in 1885. Designed by William LeBaron Jenny, it was the first building not constructed of bricks and mortar, but rather it utilized a metal frame, thus reducing the weight of the building by one-third. It was torn down, probably too small, in 1931. We learn building terminology and styles. The NBC Tower and Skidmore Owings and Merrill Building are in the Chicago School of Architecture style from 1880 to 1910. The design consists of three parts, a base, floors on top of a base, and a decorative top. 330 North Wabash, formerly IBM, is the international style, made famous by architect Mies van der Rohe, whose poetic philosophy was less is more with ornamentation minimal. Popular in the 1920s, Art Deco style, merchandise Mart, uses vertical lines with floors set back to allow for more light and ventilation. Geometric designs are applied for ornamentation. The postmodern style, 333 West Whacker, rejects the simple international style design and borrows from older styles like Greek and Roman architecture, interpreting them in a modern way such as by using glass curtain walls. Other ways to see Chicago include walking, bus, and of course panoramic views from the top of the city's many skyscrapers. We ascend by elevator to the 94th floor of the Hancock Observatory, 875 North Michigan Avenue, featuring portable audio headsets so we can listen to valuable information about the site. From here we can see 26 miles of lakefront and three other states, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan. Built in 1973, the Willis Tower, another option, is the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere at 1,450 feet tall. We flew here on Southwest. Free baggage, From Buffalo, cheaper and easier than from Toronto. From either Midway or O'Hare, unlike Toronto, there is easy and cheap subway access. Less than $2 a ticket to the downtown. From our handy hotel, the Wyndham Blake, Chicago, we enjoy easy foot access to Millennium Park. Opened in 2004, Chicago's impressive center for art, music, architecture, and landscape design. A popular destination for family fun that features a 24.5-acre park. Park with two unique works by world-renowned architect Frank Gehry. The J. Pritzker Pavilion, an outdoor music venue that seats 11,000 people, and the BP Bridge, a winding serpentine footbridge that crosses Columbus Drive. Here, kids of all ages play in the park's Crown Fountain, which includes two 50-foot glass towers at each end that project video images of the faces of Chicagoans. The kids love it and shriek with glee. At the pavilion, filled to capacity with families eating eclectic picnic meals, we enjoy a free concert performed by the Chicago Philharmonic. They play Beethoven's Rousing Ode to Joy, an appropriate title for this vibrant city. Afterwards, we dine on famous Chicago-style pizza from a restaurant directly across the street from The Blake, which favors us with a free beer in their attractive lobby. Another evening, we take in the foot-stomping musical Million Dollar Quartet at the Apollo Theater in Lincoln Park, featuring the music of Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash. The young, talented singers have the crowd tapping and stomping in enjoyment on the floor. And afterwards, we take a slow walk through an appealing neighborhood landscape that includes fancy condos, DePaul University, and inviting local pubs. Utilizing a three-day Chicago trolley and double-decker company bus pass, which offers stops at 15 downtown tour stops, we are able to hit most of the other Chicago sites we can fit in, such as the Field Museum, which houses Sue, the largest, most complete and best preserved Tyrannosaurus wreck specimen ever found, and the always impressive Art Institute of Chicago, which boasts one of the largest and most extensive collections of impressionistic and post-impressionistic paintings in the world. Dining on a patio across from the Institute, we observe youngsters climbing aboard two flanking huge lion statues. Suddenly, a loud roar is emitted by the static lions, and the kids rapidly jump off, accompanied by a please keep off the lion's announcement. Among all of its other attributes, Chicago has a great sense of humor. In Chicago, I also engaged in a secular pilgrimage on opening day at Wrigley Field, home of the Cubs, in 1963, as sports editor of our high school newspaper, I obtained press credentials to hang out with Toronto's elite jock media at the annual Sportsman's Award at the Royal York Hotel, where I met two of Chicago's famed athletes, the Cubs' Ernie Banks and and the Bears' Bronco Nagurski, Windy City legends who both played here at Wrigley. Banks was a superb Major League Baseball shortstop and first baseman for 19 seasons, 1953 to 71, an All-Star for 11 seasons, and in 1958, he hit 313 and led the National League with 47 home runs and 129 RBIs. Decades later, I talked baseball with another Cub All-Star, Canadian Ferguson Jenkins, right-handed pitcher and three-time All-Star as well as the 1971 National League Cy Young Award winner. In 1991, he became the first Canadian to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. We sit in a media room deep in center field, and Jenkins is modest and affable. Yet, despite complimentary food and beer and chit-chat, I need to experience the fans outside in the bleachers, so off I go. Wrigley celebrates its 100th birthday this season, and the stadium is packed, despite cool weather during this early series with the Phillies. The sun shines on the Cubs, who sport a 7-1 lead, and the center field stands reflect a giddy mood that permeates the frigid air with laughs and smiles and beer, and well-lathered hot dogs. A Cub loyalist rebukes a nearby Philly antagonist with, our team has a significant lead over yours, and his allies shout out a chorus of significant, significant amidst chuckles and playful pats on the back. It's too early for the Ivy to cover the outfield brick walls, but later in the season, balls become lost in it. An outfielder signals a lost ball by raising his hands. The umpires then call time and may rule the play a ground rule double. If the outfielder opts to try and find the ball amidst the ivy. The ball remains live and base runners may advance, making Wrigley Field managerial strategy both flora and sport. I notice other fans enjoying the game as well lounging on nearby rooftops on residential streets that surround the park in this community. Lakeview, the bars, restaurants, and other establishments collectively called Wrigleyville the flat rooftops of the apartment buildings across Waveland and Sheffield streets predate the ballpark. Wrigley was built in 1914 as Wigum Park for the Chicago Federal League baseball team the Chicago Whales. It was renamed for the Cubs team owner and chewing gum magnate William Wrigley Jr. From 1921 to 70, it was also home of the NFL Chicago Bears and Mr. Nagurski, a Canadian-born American football player from Rainy River, Ontario. Nagurski, he was also a successful professional wrestler. The oldest National League ballpark is the second oldest active Major League ballpark after Boston's Fenway Park, but it has yet to see the Cubs win a World Series, which leads me to explain the curse. Yesterday, I had lunch at the Billy Goat Tavern, a busy restaurant that was the inspiration for Saturday Night Live skit that featured comedian John Belushi portraying a stubborn cook who accepted only orders of cheeseburger, cheeseburger, no fries, cheeps no Pepsi, Coke. Now it's one of the chain of taverns in Chicago, including Navy Pier, the Merchandise Mart, O'Hare Restaurant, and the West Loop, even Washington, D.C. Founded by Billy Sianis, a Greek immigrant, it achieved fame throughout newspaper columns by Mike Royko, who disclosed a curse on the Chicago Cubs when Mr. Sianis was not allowed to bring his pet goat to a baseball game. Hence, no World Series since. But at the Billy Goat Tavern, you can order a double cheeseburger with no Prize for four fifty-five and a draft beer for six dollars. Terry Sullivan of Walk Chicago Tours is my guide, a pro baseball scout for the Boston Red Sox at high school and college games covering Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, and St. Louis, Missouri. He explains the entrepreneurial rooftop rules. The allotment is 150 people per roof, and the 15 rooftop owners must all provide the Cubs with 17% of their $70 per person charge, which includes booze and food for the happy spectators. Looking past the centerfield bleachers and scoreboard, I note that most rooftops are full. With two pro baseball teams established here, Terry says that Chicago locals tend to introduce themselves in three different ways. First, they ask what parish each belongs to, then what park they live near, and finally, the most important, the Sox or the Cubs? Terry says that the teams are an economic engine in Chicago, and given the success of the NBA Championship Basketball Bulls with Michael Jordan, the Stanley Cup Blackhawks, and the World Series champion White Sox, Cubs fans must really hate Billy Cianis and his damn Billy Goat. Sadly, both the Cubs and the Sox lost their home openers while I was here. The fans fanatical in their support in my 1963 pilgrimage is complete. A quick plug now from my recently published book, Don't Ever Quit, available in paperback from Amazon in an ebook format at Amazon Kindle, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble. To read my travel articles, go to my website at whattravelwriterssay.com, and for travel pictures, go to Pinterest at www.pinterest.com backslash Mustang6648 backslash. If you have questions or comments, contact me at mjk6648 at gmail.com. We conclude each podcast with an appropriate travel quote. Today it's from Ben Gay III who said, no amount of travel on the wrong road will bring you to the right destination. Thanks for listening. Happy travels and tune in again next week for another What Travel Writers Say podcast.